House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. We are doing true, true crime today, sort of, in a political way, which <laughs> I guess that's the same thing. Um, now, and we've got uh, an author who was involved in some of the stuff. Um, and let's just get right to him. His book is called Dirty Trickster, Corporate Spy, and it's Martin D. Kelly. Thank you for being here. I'm happy to be hanging by my tail upside down like a bat, as you mentioned. <laughs> in the bat cave. <laughs> I'm in the bat cave. In yep. the bat cave, yeah. Yeah, all alone. All the others are sleeping. They all get a day yeah. off. That it just smells, ter- smells terrible, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's okay. You know, you get used to it. I guess. You get used to it. So listen, um, let's talk. This is the first time you've been on our show, so let's talk about okay. you. All we'll right. Get, get into you. So um, where do you hail from, and kind of what's your background before we get into the uh, book? Well, briefly, I was a military brat. Um, my dad was a World War II fighter pilot, and uh, he, he remained in the Air Force after the war, and uh, I was born on a military base in Japan and uh, went with the family to bases in Germany and Texas and Alabama and Wyoming, Florida. You know how military families go one place to another every three or four years. Yeah. And uh, that's probably why one of my favorite pastimes is traveling. And I've been fortunate enough to have visited many countries over the years and in my semi-retired role these days as a travel writer. But um, I spent most of my years here in Florida, where I am now, and uh, I obtained a B.A. while attending the University of Miami uh, while on a golf scholarship. So um, I did write a couple of books previously. I was uh, involved in journalism as it relates to the outdoors, fishing and hunting and camping and whatnot, and uh, have a couple of books related to that uh, that I've also penned. Well, that's interesting. You were the fisherman. Yeah, I saw that a couple of books. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you survived Alabama, so you've been through the worst. (laughs) Well, yeah, pretty much. Montgomery. We were in Montgomery, Alabama. But, you know, it's a beautiful state. Uh, Squirrels, uh, just bountiful uh, game of uh, deer and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we were in Montgomery for about uh, three years. It was uh, quite, quite interesting. Oh, I bet. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it is pretty. Uh, so, how did you get involved with the whole um, dirty tricks, tricksters? Like that's a, that's a saying that really goes along with um, Nixon and True. and Watergate. That's sort of like if someone said "dirty trickster," his picture goes into my mind. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. How did you get involved with that campaign to begin with? Well, it, it sort of has a backstory. I mean, I, I always enjoyed practical jokes when we were, you know, when I was a kid. And and uh, as, as a quick, for instance, uh, when we were at Homestead Air Force Base south of Miami back in the 60s, our phone number was one digit off from the base motor pool where they provided cars to people visiting who, you know, would fly in the bigwigs and, the, uh, because our number was one digit off, we would oftentimes get mistaken calls to our house for to, to provide a car. And my dad kept telling them that and changed. They wouldn't change the number. So whenever I was alone in the house and a call came in from some 
hotshot asking for a car, I'd pretend to be an airman at the motor pool. And even at my age of 16, my voice sounded like an adult. So this, the conversation would go like this. this. This is Colonel Williams from the Pentagon. I need a car delivered to the visiting officer's quarters immediately. Yes, sir. It'll be there in 10 minutes. About 20 <laughs> minutes later, the phone rings. Hey, this is Colonel Williams. Where in the hell's a car I requested? Supposed to be here 10 minutes ago, and I'm going to be late for a meeting. Oh, sorry, Colonel. I had to go number two. Uh, I'll be right over with the car. Then I'd hang up again. <laughs> and the next time Colonel Williams called, he wasn't calling to say Merry Christmas. No. <laughs> and uh, and uh, after that played out many times, they finally changed the motor pool number, but uh, they didn't catch up with me. So I, I had a kind of a penchant for silly tricks and, and things such as that. And my dad was... Uh, was not a political person in the sense of being a candidate or active in the party, but he was a, he was he had a Republican heritage, and he commented often at the dinner table about different things happening in the country and whoever was president, and et cetera. So um, when I got into college, uh, while I was playing golf, I I became involved in the college Republican organization, and ended up being the statewide chairman of the of the group. We had about twenty thirty different campuses that were organized with clubs. So um, I got contacted by Don Segretti um, by actually two people. One was a friend in Miami of mine who had worked as an advance man for Nixon in 1968, and Segretti had contacted him from a list of that, and he had mentioned me. And the other was a guy named Bob Benz, a Republican Party operative in Tampa, who I'd met through the Young Republican Organization. So Segretti needed someone based in Miami because that's where all the headquarters for the Democratic candidates running for president had their main headquarters for the state base there. And uh, as it turned out, although many people took part in small ways with the dirty tricks effort during Watergate, only Bob Benz, uh, Segretti, and myself were paid from a slush fund kept by Nixon's personal attorney, a fellow named Herbert Kalmbach, and we were the only three witnesses to later testify before the Senate Watergate Committee on the subject of dirty tricks during the 1972 Democratic presidential primaries, and Don had called me and said he'd like to meet. He sounded very mysterious. He called himself Donald Simmons, not Donald Segretti. He gave me a false name, and uh, he asked me what I thought about negative campaigning, and even at that young age, um, and in my limited contact and, uh, and, and campaigns that I'd been involved in, um, I could see that negative campaigning seemed to emote people a lot more than positive campaigning. So my natural answer was to say, well, it has a great impact. So he said he was from a rich family and went to Harvard, and, and now he just wants to help in the political process to sow some disunity in the Democratic um, rivals running for, for president. There were 16 different Democrats running. So uh, Segretti is kind of, I met him at a hotel for lunch, and, uh, and he's only about 5'2". He's a real little guy, dressed in a jacket tie, sort of this boyish face, even though he was close to 30. And uh, he talked in hushed tones. It was all very, very mysterious, and uh, it, 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 it intrigued me. Uh, obviously, now when I look back, I wish I'd have told him to shine my shoes and take off and forget it, you know. But uh, <laughs> instead, I succumbed to the dark side, you might say. And uh, and he called me uh, for a couple, three weeks after that. And then uh, that's when I just 
sort of gradually started taking part in things like counter demonstrations with signs from different candidates, like if Muskie was having a rally show up with a group of uh, college Republicans holding um, signs for a different candidate, such as for Humphrey or for for John Lindsay, who was the ex-mayor of New York City running, or Shirley Chisholm, or any one of the many characters, Scoop Jackson from Washington, uh, just just to make it look like they were supporters of another group there. And so, so I didn't I didn't jump into the deep end. I, I just sort of stuck my big toe into the shallow end, and then emerged deeper and deeper until I was a, one of the dirty tricksters. Yeah. Did you realize that you were uh, doing this for? Uh, in a roundabout way, Nixon and the White House? I strongly suspected it. Uh, Donald Segretti did not tell me that. Uh, my, his stock answer, when I would say, uh, you know, obviously this isn't being organized by the uh, by the White House gardener. This is a lot larger <laughs> scope and flying around the country and providing money. And I said, uh, I suspected strongly it was it was coming from either the committee to re-elect the president or directly from the White House. And Don would just say, I don't know. And then finally, when we got to know each other better after four or five months of collaborating, he, uh, he said, I'll tell you what, after the, after the election's over, we'll sit down over a beer and I'll tell you the whole story. <clears throat> and so that's when I knew that, in fact, uh, we were dealing, he was dealing directly with the White House and I was indirectly through him. How, so when you look back at this now, how do you, how do you feel about um, doing the things uh, that you were involved with? Like, how do, how, uh, do you feel like you were used, or do you feel like um, part of the scenario? I guess you were, but uh, where does it where does it sit with you now? Well, you know, I was uh, I'll I'll give myself this. I was a co- very ambitious young college guy who was getting very fascinated by the political process. I was moving up fast in the chain of uh, Republican activists. Uh, I'd already won the statewide convention for college Republican. And I was just overly ambitious. I, I really didn't use very very good judgment. Um, and I, I mean, I've regretted it a thousand times. I, I, I am not a supporter of those type of activities. Um, and, and frankly, that's the purpose of my book, mainly, uh, is uh, there's a lot in there about uh, party activism and maneuvering and different things you do at a convention as opposed to an election. And I, I state over and over again that uh, don't, don't succumb to the uh, insalubrious side of politics, the dark side, uh, because that becomes you. Um, had I not been caught in Watergate, I would have probably gone on and gone to law school at the at the expense of the Republican Party. I would have probably been a political operative. I may have run for office, and um, uh, in retrospect, uh, I would have had no moral compass. Uh, I would have probably felt that the ends justify the means, no matter what, and that's not what democracy is about. And and, and I, I don't say that loosely or in a corny way. Uh, I, I feel that way truly. I, I in a way I was saved by the Watergate break-in and then everything else becoming divulged uh, through phone records and testimony, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so while I retired <laughs> at a really early age from, from politics, you might say, uh, it taught me a lesson that uh, 
sometimes you need to step back, think things through, uh, uh, sort of get a vision for the consequences of what you're going to do and not make a bad decision. And uh, so I very much regret my involvement in it. At the same time, it's a story that needs to be told. Um, there's never been anybody from directly the Dirty Tricks Brigade, you might say, that has written anything about about it, a book. So I reveal and tell all about the different capers we did and how they were planned and how they were executed. And um, it's quite fascinating, I think, and, and shocking even, uh, to what extent uh, we went to 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 try to get the uh, the candidates, the Democratic candidates, backbiting each other and blaming each other for these different weird things going on. So it would be more difficult for them to unify after the convention when they pick whoever was going to run against Nixon. That was the whole purpose. So um, in summation, uh, it, it was just a stupid thing to do. It really was. I never did anything illegal. I didn't do any break-ins. Um, I didn't write any scurrilous letters or distribute them uh, attributing sexual improprieties to any of the candidates, and unfortunately that had been done um, by others. Uh, I did stay, you know, have the sense to stay clear of that. But the things that I were doing, pranks or not, were, you know, really don't belong in the political process, um, notwithstanding the fact that it has been going on for, you know, ever since there's been elections, there's been skullduggery taking place and underhanded activities but um, that's all a rationale that uh, uh, that doesn't let me off the hook and uh, I regret it I just I just wonder like what was going on in your mind like at, at, and I mean this in a, in in a respectful way but I just mean um, so back at the time mm -hmm. when you were planning these things right did you think you were hurting anybody or hurting the system or was it just all good fun no i knew i was okay uh it was it was both it was good fun i mean uh you know we would laugh about some of the some of the things that we did uh that um much of it sometimes ended up in the newspapers um even some of the things that took place and i'll be glad to describe some of them but um i did know very much it was wrong and um I did know it was on the edge of uh, of legality and impropriety, and um, uh, at the same time, I moved forward with it. A lot of it, again, was the ambition. Uh, I had uh, hopes for for uh, becoming a mucky muck in the Republican Party, and uh, certainly, if you think that you are dealing with people who, is in fact, turned out to be involved in this. And we're talking about the White House appointment secretary, the chief of staff, the president himself, who first came up with this whole idea of a dirty tricks cabal. Uh, if you're dealing directly with them, um, you are jumping. You're, you're, you're hopscotching way over the normal route it takes for a political activist to get somewhere and to, to move up in the ranks. So it, it would have been a giant leap from a strictly political standpoint had uh, the Watergate burglars never been caught. Um, having said that, I, as I said before, I'm glad it did happen because uh, that's not the kind of life I would have wanted to, 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 to lead. Yeah. Now, um, we've uh, had Roger Stone <laughs> uh -huh. oh, yeah. on mm -hmm. the show a few times. And, mm -hmm. and people like him seem to think that Watergate was just fabricated. 
that it's it's just a, a way of bringing down a, a great man was kind of his opinion. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I think evidence shows otherwise. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just I, I'm not sure how he can rewrite history. Yeah. In that yeah. way, because I mean, it was what it was. It's not. It's not fabricated. There's. I'm sure no. there's some things that were, you know, uh, pressed upon that were kind of made out more than they are. But you know, a lot of it. A lot of it. To play psychologist for a moment, uh, was strictly because of the, of the of the mind, the mindset of Richard Nixon. Here was a man who, as we all know. Um, was vice president under Eisenhower, um, lost a narrow election to John Kennedy, lost an election in 62 as governor of California, and was considered a loser, pretty much. And he despised the press because the press beat him up pretty good. Um, so when he ran in 68 and won, um, I think he became um, very arrogant uh, he, he had put together a brilliant uh, international foreign policy team with him and Kissinger. Maybe the best in history. Right. Uh, domestically, eh, you know, the domestic, uh, the, the economy was rolling along re- pretty much despite what Nixon did or didn't do. He wasn't really noted as being a great uh, ec- uh, economist. But at the same time, there was nothing egregiously bad happening with the country in terms of that. There was a turmoil from from the from the war, but you know he brought it to an end. Some would say so quickly that he pretty much allowed the North to take over South Vietnam, but it did end a very contentious war uh, under his watch. He got arrogant because he was going to win the 1972 election uh, against probably anybody the Democrats were going to throw up, uh, and and I. I don't mean to say throw up in that in that sense, <laughs> but uh, Ed Muskie, uh, for those who followed Watergate uh, back then or know anything about it, was from Maine. Uh, he was tall, lanky. Some compared him to Lincoln, although facially he didn't look like Lincoln. But he was he was actually a pretty good candidate. And um, the, the the Nixon White House and the Committee to Reelect the President, which was a group representing uh, Nixon and the political and the Republican Party felt that Muskie was a threat. Uh, they, they, they felt they could beat him, but he was more of a moderate to even a moderate conservative, and that scared them a little bit. He was raising a lot of money. Uh, he was the front runner in the Democratic primaries initially, and they wanted to de- derail his train. And there's another little hitch to this. During Nixon's career, way back even when he ran against Helen Gahagan Douglas back in the 50s in California, there was a political operative by the name of Dick Tuck, T-U-C-K. If anyone Googles Dick Tuck, they will see that he was a brilliant trickster. Um, He pulled all kinds of funny things that happened to Nixon during these elections, and Nixon admired him. He resp- I don't know if he liked him, but he respected him. And one day in 1971, Nixon sitting in his office, the Oval Office, White House, he calls H.R. Uh, uh, Haldeman, Bob Haldeman, to his office, who was his chief of staff, 
and he the conversation, which was taped, uh, he said, you know, I want a Dick Tuck type of operation uh, to to mess up the um, the Democrats. So this was a revenge type of thing on his part. So Haldeman calls in Dwight Chapin, who was the appointment secretary, and explained what they wanted to do. Chapin happened to have someone in mind, a guy named Donald Segretti, who was a chum of his when they both went to the University of Southern California. So that's how Segretti got into it. That's how the whole thing started. It was really the brainchild of Richard Nixon. And, uh, and, I, and I, say, I must say that some of these people who got involved in the campaign, such as G. Gordon Liddy uh, and former CIA agents like Howard Hunt, they just took this whole thing and turned it into a murder mystery type of uh, 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 conspiracy, and Nixon didn't stop it. Uh, what he did know isn't, isn't certain, but he should have slammed his foot down one day and told Haldeman, and says, look, I want an end to all of this nonsense. Let's just run a, a campaign. We've got McGovern. You know, pr- uh, we can try to get him as the nominee, and, and we can push and badmouth them by all the usual negative tricks that are used you know, by different people, but, but nothing on this scale. And people breaking into Watergate? Yeah. To, to plant bugs. I mean, that was actually the second time that they had broken in. The first, the bug went bad. They had to go back in. That was the second time they got caught in June of 1972. So, for uh, you know, I don't know Roger Stone. I know of his background, but for him to say that this was just a uh, something the press or or uh, uh, you know the political opposition the Democrats used to get back at Nixon is to me is ridiculous. Uh, yeah. I don't think there's any question. It <laughs> all came from Nixon. It was directed by people from the White House, and some of those people ended up going to prison. Yeah. I, I think it's just easier now, because this was the early 70s, and so yeah. so many people now in the, the last generations have no idea who Nixon yeah. was and what Watergate is. Right, right. So, so it's easier to spin it, I guess you would say, you know. Well, it is. It it is, and and even now, Watergate is is not an unusual word, because people bring it up in connection with Trump and right. impeachment and all these other things, and and it even drags Clinton into it in, as being the impeached in the late nineteen uh, 1990s, and so all of these things get drummed up again, and of course, Watergate is like the albatross that's hung around anyone's neck who's accused of doing doing anything wrong that they should be impeached like Nixon. Right. So, yeah, it's kind of how it goes yeah. now. It's the yeah. it's the standard. So, let's tell uh, the audience um maybe uh, uh, one or two of your dirty tricks like kind of what 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 kind of an example can you give us of what you would do? Well, all right. Um probably the most celebrated one even though it was probably the least harmful at all. Uh, I was at the uh, going to the University of Miami, I was attending classes, and just for grins, I stopped to check out the camp, the campus bulletin board in the breezeway uh, between the administration buildings. And all colleges, you know, have a bulletin board of people needing roommates and selling junk cars and who knows what. Yeah. Um, but there was a tall, busty, blonde co-ed, uh, co-ed wearing jeans and a and a tight sweater st- standing next to me. And I said to her, uh, you know, hoping to con- get a conversation going that, Hey, too bad they don't tack dollar bills up there, you know. And she sort of 
she sort of glanced and sighed. She says, yeah, but I need a ride to Gainesville to hang out with my boyfriend who lives up there. I don't have enough money for bus fare, and neither does he. And, and I said, well, maybe I can work something out. So I'd, I'd received advance word from Segretti that Senator Muskie would be in Gainesville two days hence for a rally at the University of Florida. And I also knew the name of the hotel where he was staying. So I kind of swallowed hard, took a deep breath, and rather timidly asked, uh, would you do me a favor if I helped you out with a little money? And uh, what favor? She said. Yeah. <laughs> she, her, her green eyes wide and glaring directly into me, and she, she definitely had the wrong idea. But I said, who do you like in the upcoming race for president? And she said, McGovern. I said, perfect. I said, um, you know, I'm, I'm working for McGovern, too. I said, uh, listen, if I gave you $20, um, would you go to Gainesville and streak in front of Muskie's hotel? And just just strip off your clothes, yell, I love Ed Muskie a few times, and if anyone asks you, just give a fake name and say you're from McGovern and take off. So I opened up my wallet before she could answer, and I took out two $10 bills and my God, she snapped them out of my hand like a chicken pecking a food pellet. <laughs> uh, she said, well, I really need to get to Gainesville. I'll do it. So I later told Segretti about this unplanned rendezvous with her. And, you know, let's face it, we figured the chances of it actually happening, happening or any press coverage would be an outside shot at best. fact is I fully expected her not to do it. And imagine our utter shock when days later we found out that a Gainesville newspaper ran a story on the incident. <laughs> and uh, they they didn't get a picture, but there were reporters right there in the lobby where he was staying, and they saw this naked girl run out yelling, I love Ed Muskie, I love Ed Muskie. And then she got into a car and some, with some friend of hers, I guess, and took off. I reiterated that incident during my Watergate testimony, and the usually stoic Senator Montoya said, uh, uh, you must have known her very well. And <laughs> everybody in the audience laughed. Um, and I had to tell her, well, unfortunately, no. But that was kind of an innocent type of accidental thing that happened, but it got huge uh, huge notoriety. But one of the more, I guess you would say, uh, uh, unique and uh, uh, well-thought-out, uh, well I guess you could say, plans that actually worked was uh, Muskie was holding a press conference at a Miami hotel, so I sauntered into the hotel without much notice, clad in a full-length overcoat. It was a chilly January day, and the room staging the press conference was jammed with reporters and onlookers. In my left pocket was squirmed a finch. I had gotten a finch uh, the day before, put it, and I now had it in my pocket. In the other pocket, the right one as it turns out, were two white mice. And it was not without considerable trial and error the night before. I'd inscribed two white ribbons in blue ink with the wording, Musky is a rat fink. So I tied the ribbons to their tails and just before entering the hotel. And I, you know, I fe feared the little critters would chew off the ribbons. But anyway, after about five minutes of Musky droning on about Miami's cultural diversity of Cuban and Haitian immigrants, and I released the finch. And it instinctively flew toward the ceiling and thudded against a window and the you know, freaked out birds frantically trying to escape the din of lights and flashing cameras and all the humanity crammed into the room. And as all heads were tilted upward, I released the, the two mice. <laughs> and uh, 
it, it, it was immediate, the, the reaction. First came a gasp from a woman in the crowd, a mouse, she exclaimed, and shuffled backwards, and then someone else reacted similarly. And in seconds, several of those present they, it looked like monkeys on a hot plate, you know, shoving, <laughs> pushing, gasping, gesturing. And Muskie looked around the room with a like this blank expression. I mean, he's six four, but his frame was tense. His his fists were tightly grasping the edges of the lectern, and uh, it, 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 he knew something had happened, and some it, it was not an accident, but he couldn't do much about it. So uh, I anonymously called the Muskie headquarters that afternoon, posing as a distraught George Wallace supporter, and said the Wallace campaign had actually arranged that interruption of the press conference with the mice and the finch. And therein is the gist of what we were doing. Right. It was not just the disruption. You're not going to affect that many votes. Uh, fine, the, reporter, the reporters write a story the next day. That gets lost in the shuffle. What, what you're doing is getting Muskie ticked off that Wallace would pull that, and then after the convention, if Wallace was to win the convention, or vice versa, if we pull the trick on Wallace and blame someone else, uh, and Muskie won the won the thing, Muskie, uh, whoever won the Democratic nomination would have a harder time uniting because of all these little backbiting things and stuff that was going on. Yeah. So that was the purpose of the whole the whole brigade. But but the naked girl and the finch the finch and the and the mice were were a couple. But we did most of our damage at the Washington Hilton uh, in April of 1972. I'll be glad to tell you about that if you want. But yeah, uh, sure, go for um, it. Okay, okay. Well, that was one of Senator. He was still the front runner, but he was starting to lose traction. And uh, again, there were there were like 16 people running. Um, similarly to like in 2016. Remember, there were yeah. 16 or 17 <laughs> Republicans running at one point. Yeah. And, and one of his last major fundraising efforts occurred at the Washington Hilton. And Segretti called me before that, and he had me fly up to D.C. And um, we we really caused total chaos with this fundraiser. It was being handled by Madeleine Albright, uh, who turned out to be Secretary of State under Clinton years later. And um, she was handling it. It was on a Monday night, and it was a big-ticket item. And uh, so what we did is we, on that day, we ordered food, liquor, flowers, and pastries. And I'm not talking about small orders. Huge orders delivered to the Washington Hilton Ballroom just when guests began arriving. But this being in Washington, we called about a dozen or so African embassies and invited the ambassadors and their wives to the dinner as guests of uh, of Muskie. We then called limousine drivers to pick up the ambassadors and their wives to take them to the dinner with payment to be COD, just the same with all the liquor and the food and, and the flower vendors. Well, we did this, of course, posing as musky uh, aides and, and organizers. So then we got within the eye shot of what was happening, and angry limo drivers were threatening to pull the ambassadors out of the banquet hall if they didn't get paid. Same with the different other people who had pizzas that were getting cold and other things such as that. And um, they're, they're having to deal with this as, as guests are coming in, so it's obviously chaotic. Um, and it caused almost international uproars because 
the Muskie people couldn't turn away the African ambassadors. It would have created a huge scene. And they couldn't just bring out a table and put all the black people at one table yeah. and all the other people separate. So they had to go around and create extra two spaces at tables that were made for ten. Uh, and it was extremely tight in some of those tables because about, about ten or twelve of them showed up. Yeah. So... So it just was chaotic, and uh, we had organized in Georgetown the underground demonstrators outside to, to be out with signs in front of the Hilton demonstrating against the fat cats who were coming in to spend all this money on on uh, a, 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 a big-ticket dinner instead of helping the poor. Those 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 type of things are all going on at once, and the buzz in in Washington and in the press for days after that was not the musky dinner having this nice affair and raising some money was all about all these things that were going wrong. And uh, that, that's just the kind of thing that, that a dirty tricks operation can do. And they, and whenever we called anyone with the chicken places or the pizza places or the flower places or the liquor or the whatever, if they needed a, a name, we gave them the name and phone number of somebody from the McGovern headquarters. <laughs> so that's who... That's who Madeleine Albright thought did this, the McGovern people. Right. And she even yeah. she even describes it in her book, one of her books that she wrote about this chaotic dinner. So everything from that to finding out when Muskie was going to be sitting down with the editorial staff at the Chicago Tribune or the New York Times and calling ahead and saying, hey, I'm sorry, the senator's schedule's all messed up. He can't be there at 2 o'clock. Can you, can you set it up for... Um, for one o'clock instead. So the paper would have to get everybody together earlier than planned and get together at one. And of course, Muskie doesn't show up and they sit there for an hour looking at each other. And then he bounces in, hey, here I am for my, uh, for my interview. And uh, A, it, it looks like he's unorganized, no matter how he explains it. And that doesn't make it as easy for them to recommend somebody for president when the when, when he puts the editors through that kind of thing. So just just those types of uh, little tricks add up after a while in a primary, and uh, pretty soon the candidates were all very ticked off at each other. Yeah. And uh, that the But those are just some of the things we did. And it was, uh, you know, like I said, it did not impact the vote. It did not impact the Democrats. You know, the, the few, you put out a bunch of posters or flyers, fake um uh, uh, brunch flyers to get people to come to a headquarters for a fake brunch. We did things like that. Those don't affect the votes. It affects instead um, the uh, attitudes of the candidates toward each other. And uh, even half or one percent of a, a point, if that makes a difference, if if after the convention, uh, Scoop Jackson from Washington doesn't do what he was going to do to raise money, uh, or one of the other people running. Uh, just, just decides, you know, he really stuck it to me that during the uh, primaries. I'm not going to go to bat for him or her. And um, that could make all the difference in the general election against Nixon. Yeah, yeah. Kind so, of, it takes away the unity. Um, it does, it does. And, of course, they nominated McGovern, and he slaughtered McGovern in the general election, which shows this whole operation was even dumber to even spend all this money and time and effort um, when when he easily, I think I think McGovern carried Massachusetts, and that was it. Yeah. Uh, so this kind of goes on now, doesn't it? It's kind of carried on. 
Well, yes, it does. You know, it depends on the, the, the mindset of the candidate. Some people are just by nature, human nature, are more paranoid or darker <laughs> than others. Um, I don't, you know, want to say anything uh, slanderous, but there was a lot of accusations during the Republican primary in 2016 of shenanigans going on where Dr. Ben Carson uh, was in the uh, uh, was in the race, and the I think the day before the night of of, of a uh, of the primary. He flew to Florida, and one of the candidates accused him of backing out of the um, caucuses. I think it was Iowa, yeah. and said, "Well, since he backed out of the caucuses, why don't you Carson people throw your vote to me?" And um, you know, and, and it was it was put out purposely by the top campaign people of that candidate to uh, to perpetrate that false rumor. And by the time. Carson could get it straightened out. A lot of people had been affected. Well, gee, why am I going to throw my vote away for for Carson if he's not if he if he withdrew? So things like that are absolutely still going on. And uh, uh, there was something in the paper a week or two ago of a candidate, I think, in Oregon or whatever, who was caught by the police taking a stick and knocking down the campaign signs of his opponent. <laughs> uh, and that that was a misdemeanor. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So well, well, it is. So why why do these candidates think they need to have this sort of thing going on? Is it just insecurity? Because when you talk about Nixon, um, you know, and it, it, he didn't need to do that with McGovern and seven. That's right, right? I mean, that's right. So what, was he just really insecure, or was it? Yes, yes. It's it's a win at any cost type of thing. Uh, whether you're a candidate who's lost, especially have lost a few elections, and your ego just can't take another hit, uh, you're, you're, I think some people are willing to jump over the cliff, uh, no matter what the consequences are, and obviously they hope not to get caught at it. And uh, uh, you know, politics brings out the bright side and the dark side of people. Uh, there are plenty of elected officials and candidates out there with the right intentions, who do want to serve the public, who have the best interests of the country at heart, and there are those who don't. And uh, unfortunately, some of them get elected, and some, unfortunately, some of them do it by being underhanded and, uh, uh, and, and not playing fair. And uh, it's human nature less than just the political game. You get this in business as well as politics. Uh, people t- climbing the social excuse me, the corporate ladder, uh, sometimes will do whatever they have to do to undermine whoever might get that position ahead of them. So uh, it goes back to leaders, pharaohs, killing their o- their older brother in order to get the crown, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's something about uh, holding the power, yep. you know. Now, it corrupts. Yeah, it oh, corrupts. T- totally. And, and yep, yep. the thing is, it's gone so far now, you have to wonder... Uh, you know, because these these things stick with people. Um, yeah, stories yeah. and things that happen, and you're kind of, you know. So Don Segretti, um, whatever happened to him, and do you still um, know him or talk to him? Well, Don uh, did serve four and a half months in in Lompoc Prison in California for his. He pleaded guilty to two or three misdemeanors. I think was sentenced to six months and got out in four and a half. 
stayed in California, went down to Southern California, um, uh, south of L.A., I, I think Newport, I'm not sure which, but started a, uh, got his law license back. He was an attorney and um, has pre- practiced law ever since. Now, in 1995, uh, just for the fun of it, he decided to run for a judgeship, and the L.A. Times found out and just went berserk and uh, <laughs> and just absolutely crushed him. So he, he withdrew his candidacy, and I think that was his last foray into politics. But Don and I have stayed in touch over all these years. Uh, he stayed at my house here in Florida. I have stayed at his house in California. Um, our wives know each other. Uh, he was down here last year. Last May, he was down here. A year ago, May. And... Um, well, we trade uh, phone calls and emails back and forth, etc. So Don's a really good guy. He he uh, he knows that he also made a very bad decision, uh, and, and and he greatly regrets it. And you know he's turned his life around, and he's a very productive member of society. He's been practicing law uh, and, and ever since, and has done very well. Uh, and his wife Liza is a sweet and charming person. Their daughter's doing great, uh, also in the field of law. So. So, uh, you know, Don's, Don's certainly rebounded greatly from those days, and uh, while it'll always follow him around, uh, it follows him. It doesn't lead him. Yeah. And I guess, well, so when you left politics and retired from that um, career, I'll say. Yep, um, yep. You know, you went into uh, corporate consulting and securities. Yeah. How, right. What was the difference? Like, how was the changeover? So, are, is it <laughs> is it still the same? It's still kind of. The... Well, uh, you know, the whole thing with it, kind of ironic, isn't it, to go from uh, doing things on the edge of illegality to consulting on security? But uh, I, I, my dad had been involved after he was a pilot in security and in, in law enforcement in the Air Force. So that kind of got my interest probably too, uh, inheriting that part of it. And I, uh, when I got out of the Watergate stuff ended in 1974, uh, all the hearings and committees and what have you, uh, I took a job as an undercover investigator. And that meant that I was being hired into a company to work as a regular employee and spy on the employees and see what's going on. Is there stealing? Is there drug use is there gambling um what do, what do they think about their jobs is uh, uh, all these type of, uh, of of things would go into a report and then after being there for 6 or 8 or 12 weeks uh I'd go on to another company and do the same thing and it's perfectly legal it's called undercover investigations and uh it it, it uh it's very prevalent in industry um uh, the company's doing it, and pretty soon I had my own company, a uh, consulting company based in Miami, and then I ended up with three offices and 17 employees, and I'm doing polygraph testing uh, and interrogations, interviews, you might say, to find out who stole any or all the missing $500 from a bank, say. Yeah. Um, and then um, I picked up uh, a rather unique service, which is technical surveillance countermeasures, which is a long-winded word for uh, eavesdropping detection. I acquired the equipment and obtained the training to 
look for listening devices, clandestine listening devices, such as uh, transmitters and telephone taps and hidden microphones and hidden TV cameras and transponders that can follow cars and airplanes. And I did that all over the world and uh, uh, did very well with it. Yeah. So uh, it, I, uh, even though I moved since then to uh, where I'm at now, which is which is a Tampa Bay uh, area, west coast of Florida, uh, I'm still doing some of that consulting for uh, companies, and I've had quite an interesting array of clients over the years. Yeah, I bet. And it looks like it, actually. I was looking over the list. Um, yeah. Quite a variety of people. Um, yep. Anyone that sticks out for you that uh, you want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I can. There, you know, the, these activities were back in the '80s, and some of these celebrities were even then in their '50s and '60s. So they're they're not around anymore. Otherwise, I wouldn't be quite so willing to toss their names out for purposes of confidentiality. But uh, Frank Sinatra uh, was one of my clients, and. Um, he he wanted me to come out and do a sweep. He had, one of his security people had read an article I had written. Had read an article I wrote for uh, Security Management Magazine about countermeasures debugging, and so he got a hold of me and I came out and I swept Frank's place down in uh, Palm Springs. He had a, a, a one floor spread and sort of out in the middle of where he could walk out to his pool and it'd be he owned all the acreage around it so not like some paparazzi could sneak up and get a picture of him. So I came in, and he was at the pool. <clears throat> so I, they led me in, and I went out to the pool, and he gets out of the pool, and I was shocked. I mean, it looked his, his shoulders were like five inches from each from his neck on each side. He had, you could see his rib bones. Um, God, he couldn't weigh more than 120 pounds, 125 pounds. He was, I'm not tall. I'm five nine. He was shorter than me. And, um, you know, obviously when he got dressed up, he probably had padded suits and elevator shoes and, yeah. and, uh, but I mean, he looked like a total wuss. I mean, just, <laughs> he was, he was nothing. Anyway, we sat down and talked and, uh, I immediately told him, you know, I admired some of his songs like My Way and he was very cut and dried. He, look, look, pal, uh, I didn't bring you out all the way out of here from Miami to talk about my career. I want you to go blah blah blah. That that was his attitude. Yeah. And he ended up saying, uh, "Let me tell you something, pal. I know how some of you guys work, and if you come up with a bug, and you planted it there yourself to try to get more business, you won't be very, you will not be in very good shape after that." You know, the implied threat that I'd get my butt kicked. (laughs) So anyway, so I did the sweep for him. I didn't find anything wrong, and his attitude changed a little bit. We went back out to the pool, and he says, "He says, all right, pal. Well." uh, Nice job, uh, send a report to um, whoever it was, and uh, Luigi, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, his, hench, his henchman, and and I'll and I'll get you some more business. Well, he did. He set me up with uh, Dean Martin, um, and I went to Dean Martin's residence, and Dino was just about as nice as they get, just opposite, you know. Yeah. And he even said, oh, "I really didn't want to do this, but you know, Francis insisted I do it." So I'm just going to do this to make him happy. Go up in my office, check around, do what you want, and just he was all laid back and easy going in a robe and a, in a, slippers, yeah. eating <laughs> eating a bag of Doritos. And so uh, I went up, did his office, and came back down. He offered to have me stay if I wanted to stay and chat. And 
And uh, I said, well, you know, I'm th thinking in my head, my gosh, this guy's a superstar. I wouldn't mind sitting down and postponing my flight. So I told him, well, I would, I'd love to chat with you. He says, no, no. He said, I've, I've got to, I've got to go somewhere, but you can hang out here for a while until your flight. And what I, so I just said no. So he drove me to the airport. Uh, but what a nice guy. I mean, he was just like you picture him, just a laid back, easygoing, smiling, friendly fellow. Uh, Bob Hope. Uh, I, I did his uh, hotel room in London, and unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him. He was doing a performance, and uh, so I just had to talk to his masseuse. It <laughs> seems that he had a masseuse travel with him and 24-7. He, he, he got massages every day because of the uh, he'd get really, really stiff from all the air flights and moving about, and he was constantly getting neck and shoulder massages and all that kind of thing. Kind of an interesting nuance. Yeah. And I did President Marcus, uh, his his family residence mansion in um, outside of Manila in the Philippines, and um, d did uh, uh, a lot of work for probably some bad people. I mean, I had a guy come in one time with a jacket tie attaché case and said he wanted his plane checked down in the Bahamas. Yeah. And... Uh, I told him, I said, I don't do anything illegal, you know, blah, blah, blah. He said, no, 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 I'm legit. So we flew down. It turned out to be a DC-6. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I had to climb the, up into the fuselage. There were no seats, just plywood slats and marijuana residue everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my God, if the DEA is doing a surveillance on this, I am going to end up in prison. I'll never believe I didn't know what's going on here. Yeah. So I checked the plane. I found two transponders in it. I got back. They called me to do more work, and I told them I couldn't do it. I begged out because, you know, yeah. your your rear end is worth more than a few thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, you don't know where, <laughs> yeah, you don't know where it'll end. You know, it's just like, wow, you've had yeah. an interesting life and met a lot yeah, of people. Indeed, done, been there, done that. Yeah, wow. yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It's been been. Uh, that's that's why I wanted to finally put it in book form, and uh, and uh, you know, I. Tell it all. I don't hold back any names, and uh, it's uh, I think it's pretty pretty interesting. I, I am a writer, so it's not uh, it's not too hard to, to read for people, and it's over 400 pages, and uh, uh, it'll be out August 1st publicly. But you can pre-order it at Amazon, Dirty Trickster Corporate Spy, and uh, priced right, it's 18.95. Excellent. And um, I, I add my uh, email address in there too, if anyone reads the book and. Wants to call me a dirty name or what yeah, have you there? Hey, and uh, we'll we'll post it. We'll post it for everyone if you want. That's fine. That's yeah, fine. No, Never know. So and, yeah. So the book is on pre-order sale now. We have it up right. on our website as well. Oh, great, great. Again, great. Uh, Martin D. Kelly, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure, and I just hope that girl who was watching the uh, at the University of Miami, that blonde one, uh, is hearing this, and she she gets my email and wants to go to Gainesville again. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.